Chapter 18 of The Spirit of the Age or Contemporary Portraits by William Hazlitt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Eliah and Geoffrey Crayon. So Mr. Charles Lamb and Mr. Washington Irvine choose to designate themselves and as their lucubrations under one or other of these gnomes de guerre have gained considerable notice from the public we shall here attempt to discriminate their several styles and manner and to point out the beauties and defects of each in treating of somewhat similar subject mr irvine is we take it the more popular writer of the two or a more general favorite mr lamb has more devoted and perhaps more judicious partisans mr irvine is by birth an american and has as it were skimmed the cream and taken off patterns with great skill and cleverness from our best-known and happiest writers so that their thoughts and almost to their reputation are indirectly transferred to his page and smile upon us from another hemisphere like the pale reflex of cynthia's brow he succeeds to our admiration and our sympathy by a sort of prescriptive title and traditional privilege mr lamb on the contrary being native to the manor here though he too has borrowed from previous sources instead of availing himself of the most popular and admired has groped out his way and made his most successful researches among the more obscure and intricate though certainly not the least pithy or pleasant of our writers mr washington irvine has culled and translated the flowers of modern literature for the amusement of the general reader mr lamb has raked among the dust and cobwebs of a more remote period has exhibited specimens of curious relics and pored over moth-eaten decayed manuscripts for the benefit of the more inquisitive and discerning part of the public antiquity after a time has the grace of novelty as old fashions revived are mistaken for new ones and a certain quaintness and singularity of style is an agreeable relief to the smooth and insipid monotony of modern composition mr lamb has succeeded not by conforming to the spirit of the age but in opposition to it he does not march boldly along with the crowd but steals off the pavement to pick his way in the contrary direction he prefers byways to highways when the full tide of human life pours along to some festive shoe to some pageant of a day eliah would stand on one side to look over an old bookstall or stroll down some deserted pathway in search of a pensive inscription over a tottering doorway or some quaint device in architecture illustrative of embryo art and ancient manners mr lamb has the very soul of an antiquarian as this implies a reflecting humanity the film of the past hovers for ever before him he is shy sensitive the reverse of everything coarse vulgar obtrusive and commonplace he would fain shuffle off this mortal coil and his spirit clothes itself in the garb of elder time homelier but more durable he is borne along with no pompous paradoxes shines in no glittering tinsel of a fashionable phraseology is neither fop nor sophist he has none of the turbulence or froth of new-fangled opinions his style runs pure and clear though it may often take an underground course or be conveyed through old-fashioned conduit pipes mr lamb does not court popularity nor strut in gaudy plumes 
but shrinks from every kind of ostentatious and obvious pretensions into the retirement of his own mind the self-applauding bird the peacock see mark what a sumptuous pharisee is he meridian sunbeams tempt him to unfold his radiant glories azures green and gold he treads as if some solemn music near his measured step were governed by his ear and seems to say ye meaner fowl give place i am all splendour dignity and grace not so the pheasant on his charms presumes though he too has a glory in his plumes he christian-like retreats with modest mane to the close copse or, or far sequestered green and shines without desiring to be seen these lines well describe the modest and delicate beauties of mr lamb's writings contrasted with the lofty and vainglorious pretensions of some of his contemporaries this gentleman is not one of those who pay all their homage to the prevailing idol he thinks that new-born gods are made and moulded of things past nor does he give to dust that is a little guilt more laud than guilt or bedusted his convictions do not in broad rumour lie nor are they set off to the world in the glistering foil of fashion but live and breathe aloft in those pure eyes and perfect judgment of all-seeing time mr lamb rather affects and is tenacious of the obscure and remote of that which rests on its own intrinsic and silent merit which scorns all alliance or even the suspicion of owing anything to noisy clamour to the glare of circumstances there is a fine tone of chiaroscuro a moral perspective in his writings he delights to dwell on that which is fresh to the eye of memory he yearns after and covets what soothes the frailty of human nature that touches him most nearly which is withdrawn to a certain distance which verges on the borders of oblivion that piques and provokes his fancy most which is hid from a superficial glance that which though gone by is still remembered is in his view more genuine and has given more vital signs that it will live than a thing of yesterday that may be forgotten to-morrow death has in this sense the spirit of life in it and the shadowy has to our author something substantial in it ideas savour most of reality in his mind or rather his imagination loiters on the edge of each and a page of his writings recalls to our fancy the stranger on the great fluttering in its dusky tensity with its idle superstition and hospitable welcome mr lamb has a distaste to new faces to new books to new buildings to new customs he is shy of all imposing appearances of all assumptions of self-importance of all adventitious ornaments of all mechanical advantages even to a nervous excess it is not merely that he does not rely upon or ordinarily avail himself of them he holds them in abhorrence he utterly abjures and discards them and places a great gulf between him and them he disdains all the vulgar artifices of authorship all the cant of criticism and helps to no notoriety he has no grand swelling theories to attract the visionary and the enthusiast no passing topics to allure the thoughtless and the vain he evades the present he mocks the future his affections revert to and settle on the past but then even this must have something personal and local in it to interest him deeply and thoroughly he pitches his tent in the suburbs of existing manners brings down the account of character to the few straggling remains of the last generation 
seldom ventures beyond the bills of mortality and occupies that nice point between egotism and a disinterested humanity no one makes the tour of our southern metropolis or describes the manners of the last age so well as mr lamb with so fine and yet so formal an air with such vivid obscurity with such arc piquancy such picturesque quaintness such smiling pathos how admirably he has sketched the former inmates of the south sea house what fine fretwork he makes of their double and single entries with what a firm yet subtle pencil he has embodied mrs battle's opinions on whist how notably he embalms a battered bow how delightfully an amour that was cold forty years ago revives in his pages with what well-disguised humour he introduces us to his relations and how freely he serves up his friends certainly some of his portraits are fixtures and will do to hang up as lasting and lively emblems of human infirmity then there is no one who has so sure an ear for the chimes at midnight not even excepting mr justice shallow nor could master silence himself take his cheese and pippins with a more significant and satisfactory air with what a gusto mr lamb describes the inns and courts of law the temple and gray's inn as if he had been a student there for at last two hundred years and had been as well acquainted with the person of sir francis bacon as he is with his portrait or writings it is hard to say whether st john's gate is connected with more intense and authentic associations in his mind as a part of old london wall or as the frontispiece time out of mind of the gentleman's magazine he haunts watling street like a gentle spirit the avenues to the playhouses are thick with panting recollections and christ's hospital still breathes the balmy breath of infancy in his description of it whittington and his cat are a fine hallucination for mr lamb's historic muse and we believe he never heartily forgave a certain writer who took the subject of guy fox out of his hands the streets of london are his fairyland teeming with wonder with life and interest to his retrospective glance as it did to the eager eye of childhood he has contrived to weave its tritest traditions into a bright and endless romance mr lamb's taste in books is also fine and it is peculiar it is not the worst for a little idiosyncrasy he does not go deep into the scots novels but he is at home in smollett and fielding he is little read in junius or gibbon but no man can give a better account of burton's anatomy of melancholy or sir thomas brown's urn burial or fuller's worthies or john bunyan's holy war no one is more unimpressible to a specious declamation no one relishes a recondite beauty more his admiration of shakespeare and milton does not make him despise pope and he can read parnell with patience and gay with delight his taste in french and german literature is somewhat defective nor has he made much progress in the science of political economy or other abstruse studies though he has read vast folios of controversial divinity merely for the sake of the intricacy of style and to save himself the pain of thinking mr lamb is a good judge of prints and pictures his admiration of hogarth does credit to both particularly when it is considered that leonardo da vinci is his next greatest favorite and that his love of the actual does not proceed from a want of taste for the ideal his worst fault is an over-eagerness of enthusiasm which occasionally makes him take a surfeit of his highest favorites 
Mr. Lamb excels in familiar conversation almost as much as in writing, when his modesty does not overpower his self-possession. He is as little of a proser as possible, but he blurts out the finest wit and sense in the world. He keeps a good deal in the background at first, till some excellent conceit pushes him forward, and then he abounds in whim and pleasantry. There is a primitive simplicity and self-denial about his manners, and a Quakerism in his personal appearance, which is, however, relieved by a fine Titian head full of dumb eloquence. Mr. Lamb is a general favorite with those who know him. His character is equally singular and amiable. He is endeared to his friends not less by his foibles than his virtues. He ensures their esteem by the one and does not wound their self-love by the other. He gains ground in the opinion of others by making no advances in his own. We easily admire genius where the diffidence of the possessor makes our acknowledgment of merit seem like a sort of patronage or act of condescension as we willingly extend our good offices where they are not exacted as obligations or repaid with sullen indifference. The style of the essays of Elia is liable to the charge of a certain mannerism. His sentences are cast in the mold of old authors. His expressions are borrowed from them. But his feelings and observations are genuine and original, taken from actual life or from his own breast. And he may be said, if any one can, to have coined his heart for jests and to have split his brain for fine distinctions. Mr. Lamb, from the peculiarity of his exterior and address as an author, would probably never have made his way by detached and independent efforts, but, fortunately for himself and others, he has taken advantage of the periodical press, where he has been stuck into notice, and the texture of his compositions is assuredly fine enough to bear the broadest glare of popularity that has hitherto shone upon them. Mr. Lamb's literary efforts have procured him civic honors, a thing unheard of in our times, and he has been invited in his character of Eliah to dine at a select party with the Lord Mayor. We should prefer this distinction to that of being poet laureate. We would recommend to Mr. Waitheman's perusal, if Mr. Lamb has not anticipated us, the Rosamond Gray and the John Woodville of the same author, as an agreeable relief to the noise of a city feast and the heat of city elections. A friend, a short time ago, quoted some lines, footnote A, from the last mentioned of these works, which, meeting Mr. Godwin's eye, he was so struck with the beauty of the passage and with the consciousness of having seen it before that he was uneasy till he could recollect where, and after hunting in vain for it in Ben Jonson, Beaumont, and Fletcher, and other not unlikely places sent to Mr. Lamb to know if he could help him to the author. Mr. Washington Irvine's acquaintance with English literature begins almost where Mr. Lamb's ends, with the spectator, Tom Brown's works, and the wits of Queen Anne. He is not bottomed in our elder writers, nor do we think he has tasked his own faculties much, at least on English ground. Of the merit of his Knickerbocker and New York stories, we cannot pretend to judge, but in his sketchbook and Bracebridge Hall, he gives us very good American copies of our British essayists and novelists, which may be very well on the other side of the water, and as proofs of the capabilities of the national genius, but which might be dispensed with here, where we have to boast of the originals. 
Not only Mr. Irvine's language is with great taste and felicity modeled on that of Addison, Stern, Goldsmith, or Mackenzie, but the thoughts and sentiments are taken at the rebound, and as they are brought forward at the present period, want both freshness and probability. Mr. Irvine's writings are literary anachronisms. He comes to England for the first time, and being on the spot, fancies himself in the midst of those characters and manners which he had read of in The Spectator and other approved authors, and which were the only idea he had hitherto formed of the parent country. Instead of looking round to see what we are, he sets to work to describe us as we were at second hand. He has Parson Adams or Sir Roger de Coverley in his mind's eye, and he makes the village curate or country squire in Yorkshire or Hampshire sit to these admired models for their portraits in the beginning of the nineteenth century. Whatever the ingenious author has been most delighted with in the representation of books, he transfers to his portfolio and swears that he has found it actually existing in the course of his observations and travels through Great Britain. Instead of tracing the changes that have taken place in society since Addison or Fielding wrote, he transcribes their account in a different handwriting and thus keeps us stationary, at least in our most attractive and praiseworthy qualities of simplicity, honesty, hospitality, modesty, and good nature. This is a very flattering mode of turning fiction into history, or history into fiction, and we should scarcely know ourselves again in the softened and altered likeness but that it bears the date of 1820 and issues from the press in Abermarle Street. This is one way of complimenting our national and Tory prejudices, and coupled with literal or exaggerated portraits of Yankee peculiarities, could hardly fail to please. The first essay in the sketchbook, that on national antipathies, is the best, but after that, the sterling ore of wit or feeling is gradually spun thinner and thinner, till it fades to the shadow of a shade. Mr. Irvine is himself, we believe, a most agreeable and deserving man, and has been led into the natural and pardonable error we speak of by the tempting bait of European popularity, in which he thought there was no more likely method of succeeding than by imitating the style of our standard authors and giving us credits for the virtue of our forefathers. Footnote A. Description of sports in the forest. To see the sun, to bed, and to arise like some hot amorist with glowing eyes. End of section 18 by William Hazlitt.